The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert. There will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, passions collide and creativity blossoms with Dan Benarsik a seasoned expert whose life has been a vibrant tapestry of horticulture, art, teaching, and design. Growing up surrounded by the aroma of blooms and sawdust, Dan inherited a deep love for plants and craftsmanship from his florist mom and home center entrepreneurial father. Armed with a Bachelor of Science degree in plant science from the University of Delaware, Dan's journey led him to Mount Cuba Center, where he cultivated an appreciation for native plants. Dan ventured into the horticultural business world, gaining insights into commercial plant production with imperial nurseries. However, his heart craved creativity, leading him to the innovative haven of Chanticleer Garden. Here, as the overseer of the woodshop and courtyard garden, Dan transformed spaces into living art, specializing in tropical and subtropical plants. But Dan's talents don't end there. He's a passionate public speaker, a celebrated writer featured in esteemed publications, a television personality, and a skilled furniture builder. He shares his expertise globally judging at the Philadelphia Flower Show and lecturing internationally. We also discuss his famous garden chairs that are enjoyed around the world. Join us today as we delve into Dan's awe-inspiring journey where his boundless enthusiasm for horticulture and design knows no limits. Get ready for a podcast episode brimming with being creative, taking chances, and being innovative. This is episode 134, The Garden Journey, Mystery, and Discovery, with Dan Benarsik on the Garden Question Podcast. Dan, for 30 years, you've been inviting and sharing Chanticleer with people. What does that mean to you? Craig, let me just start by saying that looking back at that time, it's, it's only recently sunk in that I've been doing it for that long. It's been an incredible privilege. It started out very simply as a job, as many things do, but it's evolved into something much more. It's the opportunity to introduce people to plants and plants to people. I've heard the expression many years ago, and it really is the plant-people relationship. To see the dazzle in somebody's eyes when they walk into the courtyard spaces or walk into a fresh garden, you just see their world melt away, the smile come on, and they know that they're going to lose themselves in our experience for about two hours. It's been a real privilege to be able to do that and create that moment, if you will. Would you introduce Chanticleer to us? I'd be happy to do that. Chanticleer, we call ourselves a pleasure garden. It's our tagline. We reside in the mid-Atlantic, about 17 miles due west of Center City, Philadelphia, in the heart of the, of the Delaware Valley. 
We are in a wonderful concentration of gardens in Arboreta. We strive to carve out our own little niche. What we've done is we've focused on a garden that's based on aesthetics. Most people say all gardens are based on aesthetics. In our region, many gardens are based on collections or education or programming. We have each of those different things, but our primary focus is the aesthetics of the garden. That is to say, when you walk through, you're not going to be hit with billboards of information, reams of labels, messages, and sponsorship. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Other institutions have to do what they have to do to function. We pursue the beauty and the aesthetics of the garden first. It's not an attempt to keep information from you, but you will notice a lack of labels. We want you to experience the feeling first. Then through a series of plant list boxes, keys, and maps, we can provide you with that information. Worst case scenario, if you still can't determine it, find somebody with a Shannon Clear shirt on, pull them over and say, what is this? I have to have it. <laughs> How have you refined your design principles over the years? Some may say uh, with more time, your designs get more complex. I think I perhaps have I don't want to say reverted, but I will say that I've distilled down to the basic principles that I always refer to. I've simplified my design process to the essence of it, whether it's repetition, journey, scale, definition, innovation. These are principles that I always refer to, or if I'm stuck for an inspiration, I'll try to pick two of those principles, key in on that, and get my creative process moving, and things just seem to take hold after that. I would say my process has become less complicated rather than more complicated over the years, distilling down to the essence of design principles. Could you give us an example of how you use that? I'm going to pick two principles. I'm going to pick repetition and scale. I work in a public space, a public garden. By nature, they tend to be larger than most of our private gardens or our home gardens. No surprise, I work in a public garden. So scale is important. If you put a conventional sort of residential-sized ornamental container there, it would look ridiculously small. I almost have to go with the bigger is definitely better principle with scale of container displays or in-ground displays. Now, I can do that, and I'm a plant passionate person. I'll open the catalogs and find my sources and pull in a whole load of different plants every growing season. The fact of the matter is that can be frenetic and just a jumble of colors and textures and choices. The key is, and the real strength is restraint, distilling it down to a few key plants and repeating that plant, that color, that texture, that impact point so that the visitor isn't scattered or intimidated. They can actually derive some peace and tranquility and enjoyment from the display. Repetition does that. That's an example of how I would employ repetition and scale two principles in my work here at Chanticleer. I employ the very same principles at home in my garden. I just adjust the scale, but I do continue the repetition, for example. What are your favorite sources for inspiration? My peers, other people in the industry. Face it, I don't think there's an original idea in the last 50 years. We see each other's work, whether it's on Instagram or in magazines or images or visits, and we look at that and we go, you know what? I'm not going to steal that idea, but I'm going to tweak it. I'm going to put my name on it, and I'm going to bend it, and I'm going to shape it. 
Travel, whenever possible, never fails to open your eyes to new possibilities, new innovations, and speaking with other gardeners in other places, you realize that your challenges are the same, whether it's, oh, it's management, oh, it's the climate, oh, it's my help, oh, it's my shoes, I don't know what it is. We all have challenges. We realize that we have a similar situation. We share information and share resources and share ideas and That's where most of my inspiration comes from. I don't dial up a website or a lot of different sources. Do you ever find that inspiration outside a garden? Oh, absolutely. I find it in nature every morning on my way into work, whether it's a color combination or a way that light passes through a hedgerow or a fence line and light and shadow. And inspiration takes place in a lot of different ways. It doesn't always have to happen that day. Those little images, those little photos lodge up there in my brain. Well, it seems they lodge in there. And every once in a while, I won't pull on it right away, but maybe another season, something will just, something will click. And I'll remember that moment on that hillside, the way the shadow moved across there. And wouldn't that be wonderful if we could interpret that and maybe a massive color, something to that effect. I think it happens all the time, Craig, or at least in my case, it's always happening. Maybe that's why I can't remember my keys or my PIN code. Or That's probably it. Uh, I'm with you there. (laughs) Now, you're really big into container gardening. How do you avoid repeating the same design in another season? That's a really good question. I've been working at Chanticleer for 30 years now. Somewhere between 25 to 27 of those years, I've been responsible for our entrance courtyards, the first and last experience that a guest gets when they visit Chanticleer. It has to be special. It has to be right. Container gardening, because I work in these courtyard spaces, architecturally defined areas as opposed to vast garden plots somewhere, I have a lot of paved areas, walls, terraces, doorways, staircases, And I have always enjoyed container gardening because you can interpret and, as you mentioned, reinterpret those spaces from year to year by simply recombining and reciting containers, different locations, different combinations. How do I keep it fresh? I move the pots. I move the theme. Sometimes they're singles. Sometimes they're choruses of pots pulled together, if you will, for a large display. A soloist in a large container by itself, that works. I've also found that my public, who are generally very comfortable sharing their likes and dislikes with my combination, I always enjoy that. They tend to have about a three or four year memory. (laughs) While I have the ability to rehash combinations, I really don't. And I do that for myself. If I find myself just repeating things, that's too formulaic. It doesn't drive me. I will say that I cherry pick some combinations that have worked really well and maybe re-implement them in another season or in another way. But don't get me wrong, successful combinations, successful moments, they're re-implemented. I'm not going to lose them. Because we in a public garden also serve an educational capacity. It's not just one-upsmanship for my peers or my coworkers. We want to show the public what they can do. Most of these plants at some level are publicly accessible. You can do this at home. If I can serve to inspire or challenge, that's what I love to do. You're also noted for your seasonal displays. Do you have an overall theme that 
tends to connect them? The overall theme that connects them is that they are completely disparate of each other. (laughs) Because we are located squarely between Zone 6 and Zone 7 here in Wayne, Pennsylvania, as I mentioned, just west of Philadelphia. On the warm side of the building, we're an honest 7. On the cold side of the building, where I have terraces as well, it's a cool 6. I can really do different things in a very short journey from each other. I take full advantage of that. I exploit that whenever possible. On the warm side, I have indulged with tropicals, subtropicals, tender perennials for quite a few years, and frankly have developed a bit of a professional aesthetic to that end. I don't want to say that there is an expectation of it, but the entrance courtyards have always been known for dramatic and theatrical seasonal display. I haven't lost the interest in that. I I still enjoy doing that, so I continue. But the very nature of those warm-rooted plants is they cannot endure our winters. And those courtyards are evacuated entirely in the month of November and December. They are lifted. Some plants saved. Other plants generally succumb to frosts and cool weather. We store some in our storage houses here at Chanticleer. Because those courtyard spaces are completely denuded, emptied out entirely. I have a brand new, very large, very blank canvas to work with every year. It's getting back to that same investment on my side. It needs to be fresh. It needs to be new. I can't just use the same old design. Otherwise, I'll lose my investment in it. Just the very nature of that allows me to take it in dramatically different directions. For example, last year, the courtyard was based on a garden in a high-altitude Mexican cloud forest known as Las Posas, a bit of a folly, a fantasy garden in high-elevation mountains. This year, I've taken a completely different pivot, and I'm basing my designs on Islamic and actually Persian, more accurately, design principles in the same space that I'm referring to, the same emptied-out courtyard that lets me reinvent every year. In the courtyard, there's constrictions. How do you overcome the constrictions of the courtyard? I spent probably the first 10 years or so of what I was doing thinking, boy, I'm limited, I'm fenced in, I'm blocked in, I'm confined. Then I realized this is not a drawback. This is not a challenge. This is an advantage, man. Use it. This is a steel cage, okay? Get people in here. Stop being silly about these little plants. Go with big plants, What I started doing was the smaller the space was, the bigger the plants I used in it. All of a sudden, the impact and the effect and the sense of immersion when people walked into these spaces, it was working. So I took what I thought originally was a disadvantage, and frankly, it was the strength of the space. As I mentioned, there's courtyards, square, rectangular, architecturally defined, hard edge. And I was the kid that didn't stay in the lines of my coloring book. So why the heck would I do that as an adult gardener? I love the plants that spill out over the lines. It bothers some people. But you know what? Whether we delight or disturb, we don't really care here at Chanticleer. We want people to feel something. How many people go through life and don't feel anything? Whether you love it or whether it really bothers you, that plant spills out over the edge. You feel something. I think that's a great part of gardening, to make it immersive and interpersonal. And you engage with the plants that way. When you slow down and look at the details in a garden, what do you see? Room for more detail work. <laughs> I think that's an excellent question. That's, a, that's part of a, 
a discussion I give in one of my lectures is actually taking time to slow down and letting your brain begin to slow down, letting your eyes process things differently. In this big, dramatic, inversive experience that I've just spelled out, I make sure that there's actually some quiet moments in there, be it a bench, a seating opportunity, a quiet corner, something with detail. Perhaps it's a, a plant combination in a container that just pulls you over. Even though the world around you is big and lush and just pulling at you, your world gets very small and maybe it's a detail plant or maybe it's something with a delightful little fragrance. It's important to have those quiet times in these raucous combinations too. Otherwise, it's just raucous all the time. And I think most of us have to literally take a mental break or at least a visual break. But if you can let the mind and the eye slow down, and maybe it's even letting the ear slow down and hear a water feature trickle, that's really important too. Detail is critical. The biggest designs don't work if the details are lacking, whether it's fit and finish, materials, plant choices, even just the overall aesthetic. Big is great, big sells, but to really make it cohesive, you need to have quiet, detail-oriented spaces. What would be an example of a detail that you wouldn't want to miss? Great example. Containers. Many of us may do our plant combinations in there. What type of mulch do you use? Is it just an organic mulch? Nothing wrong with that. Maybe you mulch with a sea pebble or a rounded pebble mulch on top. It has a lot of different colors and a lot of different textures. Maybe it's a glass element. A gentleman served as a bit of inspiration for me years ago. Used to crush colored glass and mulch the top of his containers with that. I thought it a little odd and not really anything I wanted to do, but I was so impressed with the color reinforcement in the mulch carrying through to the containers. I think it's just little details like that. Maybe it's the vessel or the vessel is standing on pot feet. Just a simple little detail that makes it that much better. You lead the wood shop at Chanticleer. Would you tell us about the shop and how it enhances the garden? I'd be happy to. Just a little bit of my history. My parents were both small business owners. My mother, a fourth generation retail florist and cut flower grower. My father and his two brothers set up one of the first post-Second World War, essentially do-it-yourself home centers, long before the Home Depots and the Lowe's were out there. I honestly grew up with one foot in the greenhouse and one foot in the woodshop. It was just the nature of my childhood. The fact that I grew up and leaned toward horticulture, but always had an eye out for woodworking, is no surprise. I found out years ago when I was working in a public garden that we were all pruning in the wintertime, because that's what you did. You, you did heavy work and pruning, and it's cold and miserable. I had the opportunity to chime in one day when some furniture was being tossed into the dumpster, and I said, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, a few of these pieces are broken. I said, why doesn't somebody fix them? We don't have anybody that can fix them. I can fix them. There's a little saw over there, and I know there's a drill press. I can make do with that. So I fixed them. I was given the garage, I was given the equipment, and time to do it. 
it was warm and it was comfortable. <laughs> I put them out there and my supervisor was surprised. I just said, this is what I can do. The next thing I had more to work on. I only spent about half the winter pruning out in the cold. <laughs> I parlayed that over the next few years. Never lost that. Same at Chanticleer. I came into a very rudimentary wood shop that was used mainly for facilities because we were a bit of an upstart garden. I said that we can do more than just shelving and bookcases here. We can actually build furniture for the garden. Very early on in the process, the idea of craftsmanship or craftspersonship, because there's many talented women here that also have woodworking background as well. We are building from the garden. So move forward a few more years. I identified with my director that there are certain species of trees that come down from time to time, either storm damage or intentional, that might be appropriate for good, durable exterior furniture. White oak, black locust, Osage orange come to mind for us in this area. The idea of actually felling a tree with our arborist, milling that tree and building from that, what a story. This is great. From the roots up, we're repurposing the, the very timber that came down on this property. My coworkers each have some experience, and then there's quite a few people that don't have the technique or have never built anything before, but have an idea. They have an inspiration. Dan, I would really love a rustic bench over here. What I do now is I work with them. I can either implement the design when there's time available or work with them in the woodshop to introduce them to the tools to do the job and work side by side and empower them to build the piece that they inspired. I just keep them from cutting their fingers off. It's one of those <laughs> things. And, yeah. But also, it's the, the process, the, the workflow of, an, of inspiration to completion. That has grown here at Chanticleer. We build virtually everything on site in terms of furniture and furnishings from species that are dropped on the property. If it's not available, we're not going to cut a tree down because we need a bench. But if we uh, need a bench or need a repair, I have no objection to sourcing regional woods that are appropriate, but certainly, whenever possible, species from on site. I just want to add to that, we also have a small metal shop where we have two self-taught blacksmiths who are both a pond gardener and the woods gardener who do our metal work in the off-season. That is one of the things you don't think about converting a private estate to a public garden. Stairs need handrails, okay? Not everything is safe as it is in a residential area. Rather than just having very sort of commercial-grade railings and staircases, and very artistic, handcrafted metalwork is also featured at Chanticleer. Then there's a few rare occasions when the two shops collaborate and will have both metal and wood implemented in designs. Talk about a project that you've worked on where the metal shop and the wood shop have collaborated. Certainly. We pride ourselves on being accessible. That is to say, we're completely accessible on our essentially one-mile loop path. There was one steep slope. At the top of that slope were two simple stairs. For many years, that was the impediment for full accessibility. A uh, decision was made that we really needed to change that. We worked with a local landscape architect, and we had our own ideas. But the long and the short of that, we took a 75-foot, approximately, uphill climb to two stairs and made it into about a 275-foot elevated walkway, a gradual elevated walkway with switchbacks that 
accommodated the grade and eliminated the staircase. That was all well and good. And that was a big project. And if you ever have the opportunity to come up, you will see this staircase. And it's, it's quite dramatic and really a wonderful garden space. It was near completion. And our director, Bill Thomas, came to me and said, we've taken a 75-foot journey and made it 275 feet. We need to have some rest stops. I said, oh, I think that's a good idea. We need something to rest on. Oh, that's my cue. Okay, furniture, benches. One of those, I was struggling for inspiration. What is going to inspire these benches on this monumental construction that we've just done? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what, what is here? What am I connected to? What is right here in front of me that would connect to this elevated walkway? And I'm thinking, what do we do every morning? We sweep or blow leaves off of this every day. Look at the architecture of a leaf. Lo and behold, I've engineered and designed benches that are inspired by leaves, if you will. Now, I could have done those in just white oak, which I had available, but I wanted to try more. I wanted to try something else. So we created a frame from aluminum, and it was welded in the metal shop. It effectively is the midrib and the veins of a leaf. In between those metal supporting midribs were white oak panels that were dropped in to create the tissue between the veins and the midrib of leaves. They were finished, stained, and, and painted. That has become an example of collaboration between wood shop, metal shop, for a very, I think, aesthetic plus in the garden. The nice thing is, when we close, we unbolt the wooden components, we take them into the wood shop, we refinish, we restore, prep them for next year. The aluminum frame can stay outside because it's aluminum, it doesn't rust. It's very rigid, very strong, and we had that powder coated as well, so it's very durable for outdoor, but it's a good example of collaboration of metal shop and wood shop. That sounds like a really cool project. I'm definitely coming. I don't know when. I got to come. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. I may have somewhat asked this question already, but I'm going to ask it again. How have you evolved with the garden? How have I evolved? I noticed you say, Dan, have you grown up? because I wouldn't know how to answer that one. But how have I evolved as a gardener? I'll be honest with you. I'm not the gardener I wish I was. I wish I took copious notes in that little notebook and keep my journals. I'm not. I'm a train wreck when it comes to things like that. I tend to be more emotional, a little more responsive that way. But what I've done is I've become both more confident in my decisions and also more forgiving with my mistakes. Okay. Confident in my decisions, be bold, take challenges. That's supported by our director, our board of directors, and the very sort of spirit of Chanticleer is to take chances, be creative, be innovative. And at the end of the day, if something fails, if you flew a little bit too close to the sun, we can fix it. Nobody's going to die. This isn't brain surgery. It's horticulture. So we can take chances. And if it doesn't work, we pivot and correct those chances. But if it does work, we were the one that took those chances. So that's the confidence of doing that. But if they fail, just not being too hard on oneself, just evaluating why it failed. Was it a poor choice? Maybe it was implemented poorly. Was it done hastily and it should have taken longer? Is this something I should have thought about last year and had in the ground? so it would perform this year, I begin to think on a much longer timeline, even with seasonal plantings. 
I think on a longer timeline. So I'm a little bit more patient with myself, but no less confident and courageous or maybe foolhardy, but it's served me pretty well so far. Who designs Chanticleer? I, I mentioned Bill Thomas, our director, but he's also our head gardener. Bill is the unifying vision. We have six primary horticulturists. I think we just bumped up seven primary horticulturists. I am a representative of one of those. I have an area that I am responsible for. I am responsible for coming up with the design, the sourcing, the logistics, the installation, the maintenance, the care and tending, the breakdown, the autumn preparation and the potting up and saving elements in the greenhouse for next year. Sort of the whole year cycle, I am responsible for that. I have interns, I have assistant horticulturists to help me with that. But we at Chanticleer, the individual primary horticulturists have full responsibility for that. There's not a landscape design committee and we implement those, we create. The gardeners really garden this garden. That's a lot of gardens in one sentence. Like I say, we own it from the beginning to the end. I say that the garden design is an extension of a conversation with Bill and the individual gardener. What he will do is have those conversations with each of us and continually seam them together so that we're not conflicting each other. He is the unifying vision to say, yes, no, yes, not now, maybe next year, and just keep us in check, and at the same time, feed us rope to extend. Like I say, it is a garden that is designed by and managed by gardeners from beginning to end, which is unique among larger institutions who often have design committees, landscape architects, or on-site designers to do that sort of thing. Yeah, that sounds like a real situation to work in. It is. It is. Terror is a wonderful incentive (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what am I going to do next year? When I visit Chanticleer, what other gardens are in the area? That's a great question. I alluded to the fact that we have gardens in the area in our mid-Atlantic region. If we use Chanticleer as the center of a bullseye, if you will, we have 38 or 39 gardens and arboreta of significance within 50 miles of this very spot which is a pretty impressive concentration of horticulture in America. As we know, it is the most intense concentration of its sort in the country. For that reason, we've seized on the title America's Garden Capital. It has become part of a marketing program that these gardens that I've referred to all work together. Now, the website for that is americasgardencapital.org. You can go to the website get all of the information there so that when you visit Chanticleer, you can see the other gardens that are in the area. You will learn that Stonely Garden is about four or five miles away. The Tyler Arboretum, the Taylor Arboretum, the Scott Arboretum, and Morris Arboretum are just a few miles beyond that. All right. You will begin to knit together a whole itinerary, a weekend, or a longer visit, if you choose, from the website. When you visit any of our gardens, you can pick up our little, what we call the garden passport. It's all of that website information condensed into a very small pocket size passport appearing booklet that has the dates, the titles, the addresses, the map, so that you really can knit something together. The best part is when you visit a garden, you can get your passport stamped at each garden. 
Boom. If you come to the Mid-Atlantic, don't just come for one garden. Come for several, and you can really put together a wonderful itinerary. What do you think led to the concentration of so many great gardens in that area? I think about the Mid-Atlantic is one of these sort of older portions of the country, the East Coast. Fortunes were made, capitals and empires were built, money was here. With money often came philanthropy. I think we have a bit of a history of philanthropy in this area. There is money and philanthropy around the country, but I think we have a good, strong showing of that in this region. The Mid-Atlantic, the Philadelphia area, was also settled by the Quakers. The Quakers, as one of their edicts, is a strong stewardship of the land. There were properties that were protected not just bought, but protected and stewarded for multi-generations. Longwood Gardens, for example, two Quaker brothers owned that property. It was protected and has become one of America's foremost gardens. I think we have a few things working in our favor. We have philanthropy. We have a sense of history of protection of the land, stewardship. We also have geography, which is an interesting thing. We have the convergence of many of the northern and southern species. Many of the southern species extend north to about our region. Conversely, many of the northern species extend south to this region as a bit of a limit. So there's an interesting convergence between mountain and sea, the Piedmont specifically, that also lends toward quite an array of plants that we can garden successfully in this region. You bring those three things together, and it makes for some interesting gardens, and quite a few of them. Do you ever work with any of the other gardens? I mentioned Longwood Gardens, really one of the largest gardens in America, which is just a few 20, 25 miles west of us. So often people think, oh, you must be in competition with, oh, you must sense pressure from, whether it's Longwood or Morris or any of the other gardens in the area. The fact of the matter is we work more closely together than most people realize. We're all in the same industry. We're all in the same regional industry. We work with the same vendors. We work with the same climatic challenges. We're vying for the same audience. We work very closely together. I, for example, am on the teaching staff at Longwood Gardens, as are several of my counterparts here at Chanticleer. If we're not working for, we're volunteering for other events, plant sales. We pick up the phone, we pick up the hotline and say, listen, there's a plant sale this weekend. We need salespeople. We need marketers. And people are always pitching in over here. It's a great community. It really is. It's a very good community. It's much less about competition than it is collaboration in that way. But let me just say this, with this concentration of horticulture in this area, You have to play at a high level. So it's that old expression, when the tide rises, all boats rise. We all work in this area at a pretty high level because there's pride in what you do. Not one-upsmanship, but there's certainly pride in doing what you do well and up to a caliber that is sufficient with the Mid-Atlantic. We have to talk about the chairs. Tell us about the chairs. (laughs) The chairs. (laughs) Yeah, I do a little thing on the side. (laughs) In those 36-hour days that apparently I have. The chair, the garden chair, 
as I mentioned, I, I grew up partially in a wood shop, so I've always been very comfortable with woodworking equipment, building things on my own, whether I was qualified or competent to do that or not, never really stopped me. I, I enjoy building things. It was early in my sort of professional horticulture career that I was informed about this garden called Wave Hill in the Bronx in New York City. Just kept hearing about Wave Hill and such a wonderful garden. You've got to get up there sometime in the color work and the plantsmanship. And I made it up to Wave Hill one morning. I pulled into the parking lot there and walked across the lawn to the entrance pavilion. I noticed these lawn chairs because Wave Hill is a part of the New York public park system. It's a public-private relationship as I know it. So it's effectively a New York City park, but with a very high level of horticulture within the park. I strolled across this lawn and I noticed there was some furniture and people sitting in the chairs looking out over the Hudson River. Very beautiful. I looked at these chairs. I looked a little closer and there was a chair that was vacant. I walked over to it. I was taken with this chair. The lines were so austere. I couldn't imagine it being comfortable. I put myself in the chair and couldn't imagine myself getting out of the chair. It was delightful. It was poised out over the Hudson in this beautiful garden. I picked it up and I moved it and it was light and it was rigid and it just had beautiful lines to it. And I realized the first time in my life I was traveling without my tape measure and I didn't have a clipboard and I didn't have a pencil. This was before we had cell phones that we could measure increments with a cell phone. I'm, I'm using my fingertips to my elbow to measure and I'm borrowing a pencil and doodling. The long and the short of it was that darn chair ruined my first visit to Wave Hill Garden. I don't really remember the plants. I don't remember the garden. I remember this chair. It's a chair that when people see it, they may recognize it. The first version of it was built by Gerrit Reitveld, a Dutch uh, designer, uh, architect who worked in the Bauhaus movement in the same time as Piet Mondrian. It was a chair that ended up in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, but in several museums around the country because it was a bit of an iconic design uncomfortable and impractical in the version that Gerrit built. So sidebar, there is a garden further up the Hudson in Millbrook, New York, called Innisfree. This garden was designed by a gentleman named Lester Collins, and Lester Collins was a bit of a landscape visionary, and it's a beautiful garden up on the Hudson. Lester designed the garden and implemented the garden, but he had seen these chairs earlier on in a museum or in some other situation. He took that idea and he modified that idea. He made it a bit more practical for the garden. These chairs were built and installed at Innisfree. Somehow, someway, they literally made their way down the Hudson River to Wave Hill. Because Wave Hill is a park, as I mentioned, much more publicly accessible, they were popularized at Wave Hill. So many people know it as the Wave Hill Chair, but in fact, its origin was about 60 miles up the Hudson at Innisfree. So I, like many people, were introduced to the chair at Wave Hill. I ordered a set of the plans from Wave Hill, as you could buy the chair, you could buy the plans. I ordered the plans, I looked at these, and I went, no, this doesn't work, this isn't right, this isn't going to be durable. I immediately modified the chair myself, made it out of red cedar for exterior durability. I used screws and exterior adhesive. Lo and behold, I built one of these chairs and I had it for myself. I started building them for friends and family. Next thing you know, I got a group of people together that were interested. We built them together. 
Then it went on to have classes and building chairs with people who have never built chairs before. So for close to 20 years, I've had chair building workshops where 12 to 15 people get together who have never built anything before in their life, show up with a cordless drill, and I supply everything else, and we build chairs. And in three hours, everybody walks home with a finished garden chair. I've been doing that for quite a long while, and I really enjoy it. That's an element of my website, too. At danbenarsik.com, you could visit my website and see the chairs and maybe be inspired to build a chair yourself, too. Yeah, yeah. Are there two versions? Is there like a three-board version for the seat and back and a two-board version? Very good eyes, Greg. Very good eyes. Okay. So the original version from Holland, Gerrit Reitfeldt's version, had a single slab of a back. Lester Collins, who I mentioned at Innisfree, took that single slab and made it three slats for the back and the seat. When it moved down the Hudson to Wave Hill, they went with two slats for seat and back. So each version sort of belies where it came from. Most people look at them and don't necessarily pick up on that right away, but it really belies where they came from. The chair that I do most often is the two-seat Wave Hill version, although I have built chairs for Innisfree, for them specifically, with the three-slat option. What is the angle of the seat to the back? Is that where you get the comfort? There really is something about that proportion that makes it very comfortable. I was just going to add on there and say that the most common response is, I didn't think it was going to be this comfortable. So much about that chair is the lines, the architecture, the proportions of it. Just because all of those things are right doesn't guarantee that the chair is going to be comfortable. But when you plop down into it, it is surprisingly comfortable. And I think much of it has to do with that rake, that angle. It's just, it's a comfortable chair. It's rigid. It's durable. You can leave it natural. Several people have applied a wonderful color of paint to refer to or contrast to something in their garden. It too is a blank canvas. You can take it and do whatever you want with it. It's been a lot of fun. It really has. Yeah. It looks like it would be fun to build, fun to sit in. Plus, this can become a focal point in the garden, too. It's amazing to see how often that chair pops up. And I say it's littering the landscapes around America. The fact of the matter is it's littering the landscapes in different countries of the world. Now I've sent plans and kits around the world. I think at this point, I dare say I built more chairs than Garrett Reitfeldt did. (laughs) You travel and lecture internationally. Do you ever visit a garden or an area that you think, I could live here and Mm -hmm. think seriously about doing that? I was just waiting for you to finish your sentence because I was going to blurt out, New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) I have the great fortune of being able to travel and visit. Let me make no mistake. I keep mentioning the Mid-Atlantic region. That's where I'm from. and I'm a son of the Mid-Atlantic, Delaware to be specific. That silly little state that's somewhere between New York and Washington, D.C. That's home. I am regionally connected to this. And it's a beautiful area of the country. I really enjoy it. My wife and I love to travel, but we both say we enjoy coming home because it's a beautiful place to come home to. Our garden's here. Our home is here. Our friends are here. We love to travel. New Zealand is one of those places that I've had great fortune to travel to three times each for work professionally at each level, which is fantastic work if you can get it. I'm just looking for four, five, and six opportunity to do it. It's one of those countries, the people are so warm. 
If you don't like the weather or the geography, drive five miles down the road, it's going to be different. It's always just dramatic and changing. And I really love New Zealand. And if there was ever a way we could do that, I'd fight for it in a heartbeat. I really would. Don't get me wrong. There's so many beautiful places around the world. My wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Croatia and Italy this past year. It's a return visit to Italy. And Italy is like a pair of comfortable pants. I love easing back into that country. The people, the land, the food, of course, but uh, the history. Croatia was a new one. It was wonderful. It was just something that was unknown and so fresh. And they've had their troubles in that country for centuries. But the people are so warm and the culture and the, the sea is gorgeous and the food is outstanding. Yeah, it's the worst kept secret out there right now. It's really wonderful. It really is. There is inspiration in travel. I just absolutely love it. But I, I didn't hesitate with New Zealand one bit. Well, you're a regular at Garden Design, along with Fergus Garrett, uh, Dan Hinckley, and David Culp. How do you have time, and what do you like to write about? That's a really good point. Most of what I'm doing with Garden Design and the others as well, it's less written content anymore. Most of it, in our case, are one-hour webinars, much like this is a podcast. Much like I'm sitting and having this conversation with you, I'm having that conversation with several hundred or a thousand people, okay? I was always one, and I still am. I really prefer to connect with an audience live. I want to be in an auditorium. I want to be in a classroom. I want to be with people. I want to gauge their excitement, their interest. I want them to just sigh at my bad jokes. I want that feedback. I need it. COVID changed that for all of us. And it really did put a new paradigm out there. I still prefer the live audience, but I'm also reaching people that I would never get to before. You see the audience list, and I know you know this, people coming from all over that I would never have the opportunity to speak with and more appropriately interact with. It's not just one way, it's two ways. So for that reason, I'm embracing it. I still prefer live, but I'm all for making connection with new people. I just had a couple walk through the garden an hour ago and just said, are you Dan? And I said, it depends. Do I owe you money? And they said, no. I said, I am certainly Dan. They said, I just want to thank you. We listened to your garden design webinar. We really enjoyed it. It was a lot of great information. Thank you so much. It's unexpected and really sweet. It's really nice. I've always been much more of a vocal or demonstrative sharer of information, if you will. There are small segments and easily done and enjoyable. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or, or growing a garden? I would really like people not to bow to convention. I realize that's hard because for many people, they're starting out and they don't really know the rules. What they don't know is the rules haven't really been written, okay? They feel like there has to be rules or self-imposed limits. I always appreciated the free thinkers, the ones that drew outside the lines. I know with homeowners associations, that can be a challenge. There, there can be little moments of anarchy in your yard or your landscape or your decisions that can sneak under the radar. I always love how clever people can be when they have to think about misbehaving and do it discreetly. I think it's really wonderful that way. I would like people to maybe just 
not bow to convention immediately and maybe just consider something a little asymmetrical in their designs. What's a garden myth you'd like to blow up today? I was having that conversation with a coworker of mine uh, a few days ago. The idea of fertilizers and soil health. It seems to me that for millions of years, plants have been getting along pretty well before certain large fertilizer companies popped up and said, you need to apply this. Or am I mistaken mm -hmm. on that one? Here at Chanticleer, we don't employ fertilizers per se. We strive and focus on soil health, not soil fertility, soil health. The microorganisms, we feed our soils, we build our soils. That develops a healthy fauna of soil microbes. Once those microbes are happy and active in your soils, plants thrive. Plants really thrive. As I say, plants have been feeding themselves for millions of years prior to that. The idea of low-maintenance designs are another one I'd like to dispel. There are some that are less maintenance, but low-maintenance designs... That's a bit of a stretch right there. The, the last one, putting a garden to bed, putting a garden to sleep. Biological systems don't sleep. <laughs> they may slow down a little bit, but they don't sleep. That idea of cleaning up the yard and cleaning up the garden, and I understand you want to clean it up, but maybe you just tidy it up. You know, those leaves that decay and break down in our lawns and our beds, that's vital. That is so vital to the soil microbes and, and organisms in there. And I am not a biologist. I'm really not. But I just, I understand gardens that have been left looser and tidied in the fall rather than scrubbed and prepped tend to be healthier gardens in the spring. So those are just a few myths. The fertility, the design for low maintenance or no maintenance gardens, and then the, the clean putting your garden to bed. Those are three myths that I would like to just put out on a boat and blow it up. I really would. <laughs> Nothing against <laughs> What's your earliest garden memory? <sighs> Misery, sweat, discomfort. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the big three. My grandparents' vegetable garden, they had an extensive vegetable garden. And while my mom was at work and my dad was at work, I was frequently with my grandparents for daycare, if you will. They had a farm and it's go out in the farm and pull the weeds and pull the potato beetles off and squish the slugs. Ugh, that was the most horrendous work you'd ever have to do. It was hot. It was wet. It was sweaty. I don't like this. I learned pretty often, I think many of us learn this as kids, if you do a really lousy job at something, maybe, just maybe, you may get pulled off of that. I was successful in that endeavor. They would say, get out of here, you're useless, go play in the woods. They backed up to a wooded preserve, several hundred acres of accessible woodland. This is back when you could let the kids run free and just tell them to be back at dinner time and not worry about them. It was losing yourself in the woods. It was the sense of mystery, the sense of having no idea what was going to happen around the next hill, around the next curve, behind that rock, across that stream. Even though they're not garden memories, my first garden memory was the vegetable garden and not liking it. But it led quickly to really enjoying the woods. And like I say, the sense of mystery. To this day, I don't have formal training in garden design. But to this day, the most engaging gardens to me 
are those that don't reveal themselves immediately. The gardens that you have to wander through and find and discover. Now, you may have a 10 by 10 city plot, or you may have a 10 acre farmette somewhere. If you can develop a sense of journey, of mystery and discovery, those are the gardens I love the best. I try to build those into my designs. Even in a small container, I do whatever I can I talk about journey. Journey is not always by foot. Sometimes it's a visual journey where you have to look into something to see something else. Tailor it to the space that you have, the opportunity you have, and just don't let a garden reveal itself entirely at first glance. Build some mystery into it. That early pleasant garden experience has really guided me to this day. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture? Because I didn't have the drive for automotive design and I didn't have the aptitude for civil engineering. So both of those dreams went down in flames quickly and explosively. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I thought I wanted to be an automobile designer, but I was a bit of a slacker student and I didn't get my resume and my, my admissions tickets all done in right time. And of course, I missed my deadlines and Then I went to the University of Delaware and was convinced that I wanted to be a civil engineer because I thought it was amazing. You could wear a white Oxford shirt, khaki pants, and work boots. That was the coolest uniform, man. Come on. What's wrong with that? (laughs) It's real, but it's it's good. (sighs) That whole mathematics thing, yeah, that just literally blew me out of the water. (laughs) So I knocked about undeclared in the University of Delaware for too many semesters. My counselor finally locked me in his office and said, you've got to determine a major. I had been taking different classes, art classes. I was on my way to an art minor. I had been taking some plant science and agriculture classes and not failing them. That was good. He says, you're not far away from plant science degree, ornamental horticulture. I understood the value of a, of a diploma. I wasn't going to walk away from college. I was going to get a diploma and then figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I said, okay, let's do plant science. So I literally signed up for ornamental horticulture, plant science, and continued the classes. The next thing you know, we were doing some landscape design classes and models and presentations. And this is cool. This is cool. On paper, I graduated with a plant science degree, ornamental horticulture focus. Was that my intent? It sure as heck wasn't. It really wasn't. But the semester before I graduated, because I had taken this long time, I was a little bit longer getting out of university than most. I had a summer before I had a fall semester to graduate. I answered essentially a lawn cutting job. I said, I can push a lawnmower. I can do this because the next thing I'm going to have to do is get a real job after this summer. I answered it to a place called Mount Cuba. Now, Mount Cuba was not far from where I lived, but I had never really heard of this place and seemed like a wacky name, but what the heck? The salary was okay, and I'm pushing a lawnmower. I can do this. Mount Cuba turned out to be really one of the foremost repositories of native plant research, cultivation, and display in America. It still is. That's where I was introduced to public horticulture and the people-plant relationship. Now, these wonderful gardeners that I met and interacted with, they were delightful people, but they spoke in these languages. They had a different name for every plant out there, and it seems like those names changed all the time. Oh, they tended to these plants, and they were down on hands and knees and 
pushing up soil and mulch around their little root systems. My grandparents never did that with their plants. I, I don't know. This was horticulture, and I just didn't know it yet. When I came to realize these delightful people that did these just very strange things with their plants, they weren't crazy. They were passionate. That's when I began to understand the passion that people had. I didn't have it yet, but I began to understand it. Slowly, I began to engage with this idea and see the cycle of spring through growth season to senescence to dormancy and it happening in a cycle. And I got caught into it. Five years later, I left as the Woods Path Gardener at Mount Cuba. I went into nursery sales, interestingly enough. Like most people, I wanted to make more money and I made more money. It was just connected to about a 60-hour work week. After five years of selling spiral arborvitaes and some of those pointy things, I just needed to get away from them. This was at the wholesale level. This wasn't even retail. I had the opportunity to apply for this garden position with this Englishman. His plan was to build the best botanic garden in the country. I'm like, sure, I'll strap myself to your star, pal. I just need to get out of the nursery before I lose my mind or go Old Testament on one of these customers. My timeline from university, plant science, Mount Cuba, nursery sales, to Chanticleer, it's only been three employees, but it's now 37 years in the industry. I feel very fortunate to have backed into an industry that I didn't plan on being in but also have some sort of a talent and a predisposition to it. I consider myself ridiculously fortunate for being able to do that. Oh, yeah. That's a great story. I enjoyed that. Tell us a funny garden story. I don't have any funny garden stories. What I do have working in the public garden is the access to hear hundreds of people and their ridiculous little stories as they walk by. It's the know-it-alls. It's the know-nothings. It's the show-offs. It's all these hundreds of just little anecdotes that go on around me that I enjoy. To your question, I don't know that it's funny, but it still amazes me. I was at Chanticleer relatively early on. Very long story, very short. There was two guests that were arriving later in the afternoon. There was not going to be anyone there to greet them. Could you greet them? And I was like, yeah, sure. I can let them in. Whatever. I'm new here, but I'll talk about it. I let them in and they came out and they popped out of the car. There was this older gentleman and a younger chap with him. And he still had purple from a purple hair dye job clearly a few months back. I invited them in, took them to use the restroom, and we strolled into this courtyard garden that I was referring to and growing some of my early tropicals, some of my bold plants that I'm dabbling with. I don't know much about them. I'm just having fun. Immediately, they just started talking, and lo and behold, they're both British, and we're just American plants, sun, heat, big foliage. We just started talking, and this younger man was taking notes for the older gentleman who was just spitting out bits of information, and he was interrogating me but wanted to know. It was this amazing interaction that just blew up for about an hour and 15 minutes until someone else pulled up and said, I have to collect these two. They're supposed to be somewhere else soon. We have to go. We said our goodbyes, and I come to find out it was Christopher Lloyd and Fergus Garrett. <laughs> from Great Dixter. 
for an hour, for an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, it was just three enthusiastic gardeners sharing information. They had just removed the roses from the rose garden at Great Dixter and were about to set on this plan of revamping at 87 years old, I think he was, when they did this, embarking on a new garden. It was the garden that would now become the exotic garden where they were going to grow bananas and palms and subtropical plants in a climate that you shouldn't grow them in, which is exactly what I was doing. We were just launching down the same vector at the same time in two different continents into this unknown world and simply sharing the information we had together. So it's not really a funny story. It's just a story that still resonates to me to this day. And build a very wonderful and close relationship with Christopher Lloyd while he was alive. And to this day, Fergus and I just still have that. We still had that afternoon and, yeah, uh, yeah. and a career in the same business, 3000 miles away from each other. That's an amazing story. It was cool. Like it's really yeah. cool. What is the most valuable advice that someone gave you that you still use today? The first one would be, there's two bits. I want to say two things here. Early on, someone told me, and this is a person I still respect and defer to, accept challenges that you have no business accepting and pull it off. Commit to something that is over your head and do it. It served me well. It's amazing how many resources you can tap into when you need to. Then once you've done it, you did it. What's the big deal? And so it was a big deal on the other side of it. That was a big one. And as I've moved forward, when people ask me that question, what should I do? What bit of advice? I will give them that bit of advice. Another one I say is never undersell yourself, but always over deliver. Okay. Your time, your talent, your expertise is valuable. Never undersell that. Always over deliver. That's something else that I've always tried to do and has served me well. So two simple, two simple things, but I feel very strongly in each of those. That's a lot of wisdom right there. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I think I've alluded to this a little bit earlier on the, the misbehaviors. I want to say the bad boys, the bad people, the the ne'er do wells, the ones that work outside the lines. Those are people that I always admire. I always look at their work and I enjoy that. I love to see what they're doing. To be a little more specific, J.C. Ralston, NC State. I wasn't a student of J.C.'s. I met him through many other people who were J.C. students, but I was just always impressed with the pull and the inspiration that this person had given to all these people who I respected immensely. I looked back and had the opportunity to get to know him before he passed, unfortunately. In a similar way, a little bit closer to me, uh, Marco Polo Stefano, who, as it turns out, was the creative spirit of Wave Hill. Marco was a huge inspiration to me. I was giving a talk to a a rather elite group of New York horticulturists. Marco was in the group. The talk was about design or some element. I said, I wanted to take the opportunity to thank people that have inspired me in my career in horticulture. I said, unfortunately, one of those was J.C. Ralston, and I cannot thank him at this point. But I can thank Marco Polo Stefano, who was in the audience this evening. 
I said, Marco, I didn't get into the chair story. I said, but the first time I visited Wayville, I knew that one day when Chanticleer grew up, I wanted Chanticleer to be this garden when it grows up. And I still get choked up a little bit. I had moved on with the talk and there was a little reception afterwards. Marco came up and shook my hand and said, that was a very sweet thing. I said, Marco, it's sincere. I really feel that way. And he pulled me in with the handshake and said, Dan, Chanticleer's grown up. I thought that was a wonderful compliment coming from somebody that really inspires me. I would say JC and Marco and, and certainly Christopher Lloyd, one of the great misbehaviors in the industry. Yay for misbehaviors. Yeah. <laughs> what is your most valuable garden mistake? Most valuable garden mistake? The one I'm going to make tomorrow because I made a bunch today and hopefully I learn from them. I, I can't, there's no one that would fill volumes. <laughs> it's the most valuable one is the one that I learn a lesson from. Whether it's a bad combination, a poor installation, a, a, a not really well thought out idea. Those were my valuable mistakes. And hopefully as a sign of maturity, I remember that and just take note of it and try not to make that mistake again. And keep your eyes out if somebody you're working with, a young one, an intern, an assistant, is ready to make that mistake. Either catch them or wipe them off after they stepped in. And I always tell the interns, I'm never going to let you hurt yourself. <laughs> but I just leave it at that. Never going to let you hurt yourself, but I am going to let you make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Learn. I always say we learn much more from our mistakes than we do our successes. Oh, yeah. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? What have I recently learned about? I learned that I can go away for a month in Europe and come back to my garden, and it's going to be absolutely fine. It basically doesn't need me. Now, that is both our home garden, but it's also the garden here at Chanticleer. Let me answer the Chanticleer portion of that as we have a pool of young talent here. There was plenty of people to take care of. But a well-implemented choice, design, installed well and serviced is going to be successful. I knew that when I left. I knew there's good talent here to fix any mistakes that I had made or things that pop up. There was no problem. There's plenty of talent here. But one of the things I learned when I left for that time at our home garden I'm not trying to be glib about that, is that the garden doesn't need me. It's just that I've been gardening in that property for over 20 years, and Peg's been with me gardening that area for over 10 now. And establishment. Some of my plants and trees have been there for quite a while. And with establishment comes resilience. I think in the last two, three years, it has really been a point that I'm taking time and looking at and just saying, whether it's drought or whether it's storm or whether it's disease, we always think of gardens as, what are you doing this season? I'm changing this. I'm doing this. When you've been doing it for a while, you look back at decisions you made over 20 years ago. I'm happy to say that most of those decisions were right. I honestly say that the ones that were wrong, I either fixed or cut them down. But the ones that were right and the choices were good and they're well-established and they can fend for themselves. That's something I've really learned this year in the last few years, but this year, definitely. Yeah. All right. We could do a whole episode on just your personal garden. It's been featured on the cover of Kelly Norris's book, The New Naturalism, and in Nick and Allison McCullough's book, American Roots. 
defining the American garden style. Would you introduce your wife, Peg, and the influence that she's brought to your garden in the last 10 years? I would be happy to do that. My wife and gardening partner, Peggy Ann Montgomery, we met later in life and we were married. We celebrated our 10th anniversary. That was part of why we took an extended vacation this year because we were able to. And She's a wonderful person who is also in the industry. We met many years ago, and we're very different life circumstances. She's been a bit of a journey woman, born in Minnesota, spent time in Europe, raised a family in Holland, was educated in Holland over and above her University of Minnesota education, built a design build firm of her own while raising four children in a country that she didn't understand the language in, and is a really amazing plants woman. Life moves forward, and she came back to this country to care for a sickly mother. After her mother, unfortunately, had passed, found herself in a country she didn't know and and hadn't been familiar with in many years, went to work for a very large nursery in Minnesota, Bailey Nursery, who was really at the forefront of bare root nursery production. She started on the production line, sticking cuttings, worked her way up within the company to be part of the team that was involved with putting a reblooming hydrangea into a blue pot and setting the market on its ears. She was part of the Endless Summer introduction team. Many people have seen that. She left that nursery soon after we started dating, did time at Mount Cuba in the evaluation gardens, moved on to be the brand manager of American Beauty's native plants, now works for the Garden Media Group, which is a boutique PR and marketing firm in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, that caters to uniquely our industry. Her primary client is the Royal Dutch Anthos, and it's a consortium of Dutch bulb growers and importers for gardens as well as cut flowers. That is her team. She feels it's full circle because her clients are Dutch and she is fluent in Dutch. It works together really well. You can see Peggy and see her work if you visit flowerbulbs.com. That is the wonderful voice at the other end of flowerbulbs.com. And it's really a marketing and public relations assignment to show and share the beauty of bulbs to American gardeners and what they can do with them. She's delighted with that. At the end of our work days, we come home from our horticulture jobs to our home garden. It's a wonderful place. When she joined me, I said, I don't have a vast fortune. I don't have homes in the hills and homes by the sea. What I can offer you is my garden. Somehow she took me up on that. I don't know why. (laughs) Clearly question her judgment. But we have gardened there for over 10 years now. And we have very different garden styles. We like to say that we garden in the garden apart together. She Loves to work on the detail aspect of it, smaller plants, even though she came from a bit of a woody tree nursery background. And I like to work with woodies, even though much of my daily work is herbaceous and seasonal plants. We work together in different areas of the garden and visit each other, but we have our own different styles. It's a wonderful place that we build up and we share and we entertain and we walk and we look at what we've done and we make plans about what we need to do, whether we do them or not. It's a wonderful garden to share. And like I say, that's how Nick and Allison really came into the equation. They were in town and we invited them over just to spend time in our garden with their children. It wasn't an interview for a book. It was just a lovely afternoon in the garden with friends. They've referred to that experience as one of those sort of genesis moments for the book where 
they said they felt that they had spent time in certain gardens and it had a very distinct effect on them. Just wonderful times in gardens with people that there was something to that. And that evolved into American Roots. We were very happy to be one of those gardens that sort of inspired that in them. Like I say, we talk about horticulture community. Kelly Kelly Norris from Iowa was bringing a, a tour group from Iowa to the gardens of the Mid-Atlantic. There's a lot. And rang us up and said, would you consider opening your gardens? It's friends. It's Kelly. Of course we will. This is what we do. We call in favors. We're going to do the same for you sometime, of course. <laughs> he was just wandering around with his tour group and shot a few images. And lo and behold, it pops up on the cover of his, of his book. That was crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's in northern Newcastle County, just inside the Pennsylvania state line, very close to the Delaware River, just up from the Delaware Bay. About two hours to the Atlantic Ocean, about two hours to the the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, about two hours to Washington, D.C., to give you a, a regional point. Yeah, that sounds centrally located for a lot of good things. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. Vast sweeps of one. Now, I have to give Tony Ava and Plant Delights full credit on that. I used to say I have vast sweeps of one. I was a bit of a plant collector, if you will. But that delightful woman that I married brought continuity to the garden. She suggested that if I'm buying one, maybe you buy three or five. Actually have some continuity in the garden. So I think that is one of the things that Peg has certainly brought to the garden. Besides an eye for detail, a level of continuity, which has been wonderful. Back to your question. What do I have in my garden? I will say what we have in our garden, stories. Because we're both in the industry and have been for quite a while in our respective ends of the industry, we know people, we've talked about this, relationships, plant collectors, plant breeders, plant explorers, people that have marketing people, breeders send us plants to evaluate them in a mid-Atlantic growing situation. Long before introduction, early in their progression. We have plants from all over the place, but most importantly, we have the stories that go with those plants about who they came from, why they're here. We have stories in our garden. That's what we have. Mm. That's great. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? I'm going to jump back a little bit and say resilience. I can't tell you how impressed I was in the last two years with the fact that plants are established and how resilient they are once established. I know I'm hashing that down, but it really played out in the last two years. Based on that, how I'm moving forward, I'm going to stop moving things around. I'm going to let things establish and really put down the roots that they need to be the best plant that they can be. Both of us just turned 60 this spring. So we're moving into a new phase of our lives, of our garden life. Moving forward, less complication. We are beginning to simplify, not dumb down, not reduce, but to make better choices about long-term plant combinations. We're using more and more sort of durable ground covers where we used to have little beds that were much more finicky and labor-intensive. We're stepping back. My wife observed something, and she mentioned this the other day, that she says that other people do things on weekends 
They go to the shore. They go to concerts. They go out. They do things that are fun on weekends. We're going to give that a try. <laughs> Maybe not be in the garden all weekend, all the time. What plant are you in love with this week? This week, it's definitely camellias. You in the South have a little bit of a head start with us, but our Sasanquis, our autumn camellias, we're about the northern practical range. I say practical, not that it is practical, but I want it to be practical range for growing camellias. It's just a plant I'm fascinated with, and ours have just started to bloom, our Sasanquis in the autumn garden. Our Japonicas generally do pretty well in the spring, but I love the Sasanquis at this time of year. So I'm in love with camellias this week. Last week, it was Lycoris. The, the wonderful little lilies that come up unexpectedly late in the season. And next week, it's going to be osmanthus because they're going to start blooming very soon too. And then the weeks after that, for me, and it, the theme here, broadleaf evergreens. We are just far north enough that we don't have a lot of broadleaf evergreens. It's something that fascinates me. And I'm looking south to find those plants that will exist in the north in that genre. I love to have things to look at in the winter, besides stem color, besides structure. I like to see mass in the garden. Broadleaf evergreens do that for me. It's always a favorite for me. I'm surprised osmanthus works for you there. I would say ironclad are very durable for us. Fairly deer resistant for us in our landscapes. It's actually the trickier ones for me, the Osmanthus fragrans, the, the more ornamental and fragrant ones. They're the ones that we were introduced to in Italy that we saw and absolutely love. I know, obviously, Asian plants, but we were introduced to forests of them in bloom in northern Italy one time, and it was just life-changing. So we brought that idea home. And with protection and with sighting, many of the fragrans can do quite well for us here most years. That cold spell last winter completely defoliated, but they've recovered and bloomed for us. What other passions do you have? I think I've alluded to part of that is travel. I, we, we absolutely love to travel. I have a, a penchant for uh, classic Buicks. It would really gets back to that wanting to design automobiles, but not really being able to do it. I found that it can be an entertaining hobby, so I have a classic car. When horticulture gets all too much and all too close, I jump in my smelly, noisy, leaky old Buick and go for a ride. All things are right with the world. Woodworking, beyond the chairs themselves that I, I do a lot of. I enjoy woodworking. In a way, it's an extension of the garden, or at least the living world that I'm a part of. I guess you probably have a really nice home wood shop, too. No, that's the interesting thing. It circles back to the garden. In our garden, if you ever have the opportunity to visit, you will see very large granite outcroppings, just big granite mm -hmm. boulders from time to time, which is very atypical of our region. And there's a ridge of granite that pops up really right through our backyard, if you will. It makes for some wonderful garden opportunities and things like that. What it doesn't make good for is basements. We don't really have the opportunity to have basements in our little subdivision. I have a very small one, and there's this thing called heating and air conditioning and hot water that apparently is important. It doesn't leave me much other room. No, I, I don't have much of a wood shop at home. I really don't, which is why the opportunity to do that at Chanticleer is it's a wonderful balance for me. 
I saw a photo somewhere in my research, and there was this rock outcropping in the middle of the lawn. And I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty interesting. I just placed a rock in the middle of the lawn. I, I wonder how I could do that. I always enjoy when people come into the garden, and within the first two minutes, the, the boulders are undeniable. And it's, did you bring them in there? And they turn around, and I'm always the one posing with my muscles in the background. I'm thinking, no, a helicopter couldn't bring those in here. Then I begin to explain that. A, some of them were there, but part of the garden evolution has actually been revealing. Rather than fighting or concealing them, has actually been, like I say, going the other way, revealing them, Mm -hmm. going away from what normal convention would be. What we feel is really good result. Mm -hmm. Do you ever add soil around some of them for planting so you can plant? Oh, there are occasions when we do need to add, but mainly it's revealing what's there increasing the drama of what's there. There's plenty of soil to plant. It's not a rocky garden. It's a wonderful, loamy, conventional suburban landscape with a few ridiculously large boulders thrown in there for good measure that most just don't have. Dan, tell us how people may connect with you. Chanticleer Garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania. You can find us at chanticleergarden.org. That's chanticleergarden, one word, .org. I, I don't have a big social presence. You can always find me by way of my website, danbenarsik.com. I know it's a clever address, but there's a better chance that I'll remember it. I do have a Facebook and an Instagram presence, but I'm not terribly active with them. I guess I'm more of a lurker in that way. I think those are the best points of contact for me, but my website is really the, the single best way to reach out to me. This has been episode 134, The Garden Journey, Mystery, and Discovery with Dan Benarsik on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Dan. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.